at the end of the day, when you look at cases like this, what I'm always struck with is the total waste. There were two young girls who were 17 years old. They were at the very start of their lives. They'd have been 60 years old now. And they'd have been mothers, grandmothers. Who knows what they might have contributed in nursing or teaching? Who knows? All of that just snuffed out in minutes of just wickedness. By any objective standard, he has got to be the most dangerous man that's walked the face of Scotland in the 20th century. That we know about. That we know about. Yes. Good evening, Tom. How are you? I'm very well, Simon. Very well this evening. And welcome, everyone, to Crime Time, Inc. Where we're, we're getting to the conclusion now of our look at the World's End Murders from 1977. And we're getting near to the conclusion of that. Although, Tom, you thought you were there with the first trial in 2007, but we learned in the last episode that trial folded under very contentious circumstances that you explained thoroughly to us. And that'll be news to a lot of people who probably didn't get the nuances of that through the press and the media. It's probably a good example of what we're doing here at Crime Time Inc. It's looking at the real issues and the real politics behind it and the real decisions that were made, rather than just the headline that serial killer uh, gets off with murder or whatever it might have been back in the day. Tom, before we get into post-2007, we've got a message from one of our subscribers asking you specifically how you felt about discovering that uh, Mr. Sinclair, Angus Sinclair, was in custody and you weren't going to get to collar him to put your hand on his collar and utter those famous words, you're nicked. No, it wasn't really. We were much more disappointed that Gordon Hamilton, his co-accused, was dead because, of course, that gave Angus Sinclair an immediate out in that he could blame his dead co-accused if you're going to have a co-accused, then a dead one's the best one to have. And, and Sinclair was wily enough to know that. But we weren't really disappointed that Sinclair was in prison because he was secure and we knew where he was. Had he been out and about on the streets, we would have been very concerned that he might reoffend again. And that would have meant there would have been an additional pressure on us to build the case. As it was, we could sit back and we could put it together as carefully as we needed to do. It wasn't really a great disappointment. Obviously. If someone's in prison, they have the protection or legal protection of being a prisoner. And that means you have to jump through hoops to get access to them. But in actual fact, that didn't present as much problem as it might have done. So the answer to the question is, no, we weren't disappointed that uh, Sinclair was in jail, but we were very disappointed that, that Hamilton was dead because uh, we saw him as being the weak link, but he was beyond our grasp. In the lead-up to that trial and beyond of 2007, Tom, did you meet Sinclair? Were you involved in any of the interviews with him? Yeah, I wasn't involved in any of the interviews. That's not the good tactics. You should never put this most senior officer in because if you do that, then they'll not speak to anyone else. And to be honest, I was the Deputy Chief Constable. I've been an Assistant Chief Constable for years before that. My interviewing technique was out of date. We had much more practice junior officers. Yeah who were very much better at it than I was, yep. to be honest. So you've got to pick the right horse for the right course in terms of interviewing. And we had some excellent interviewers, both from Lothian and Borders and Strathclyde. 
the thing that struck me about Sinclair when I met him is what an entity he was. He was just a little grey man. The, the kind of guy you'd have walked past in the street a hundred times. And I often say to people, you say, oh, you've met all these serial killers in black and, and Sinclair. I said, they're, they're complete non-entities when you see them. And that, of course, is one of, that's one of their greatest dangers. And they, they do not stand out in the crowd. Quite the contrary. They fit in perfectly. And Angus Sinclair, honestly, you, you just looked like a wee grey man like myself um, that um, you see hundreds of in every town and city in Scotland. There was no menace about him. And anybody who says, oh, I could spot a serial killer, you know, they're talking nonsense. Yeah. And Angus Sinclair, perhaps I would argue that Sinclair was the most dangerous man to walk the face of Scotland in the 20th century. Given the number of crimes he was associated with and those we suspected him of, I would say he killed and injured many more young women and girls than anybody else in the 20th century. The most dangerous man to set foot. You look at a picture of him and you're just a little grey man. And that's a common theme throughout society, Tom, isn't it? I was listening to a thing today about money lending, which is becoming... With the standard of living crisis that we're living through just now, money lenders are, are very prominent throughout our communities just now. But the thing that it was about is people think, oh, no, I wouldn't go near a money lender because they think they might know what one looks like. But it can be a mother outside the school gates. It can be the milkman. It can be the news agent. It can be anybody that's part of your life that can engender a wee bit of trust. And that's exactly what Angus Sinclair did with his victims that we know of. So, Tom, we're at 2007 with the trial's been abandoned. As far as the police are concerned at that point, are we content that Angus Sinclair is locked up for life and, and that we're going to have to drop the inquiry now? Because as you and I know, we were always taught that you had soldier of size once you had been tried for the crime. Yes, uh, and of course at that time the double jeopardy rule applied, which meant that you could not be tried twice for the same crime in a Scottish court. But we were far from satisfied. In fact, we were extremely angry. I've never seen such anger and frustration in senior detectives. We really felt, and it was widely felt, that there had been a miscarriage of justice. Uh, luckily, we weren't the only people that felt that. The press were uh, up in arms about it. But more importantly, Frank Holland, who was then the Solicitor General, the second senior law officer in Scotland, and Kenny McCaskill, the Justice Secretary at that time, the SNP minister at that time, they both felt the same. And I've got to pay credit to these two. Politicians get a hell of a slating, usually in the, in the press and the media, of all the things they haven't done. But Kenny McCaskill, who is now in the political wilderness, left the SNP, etc., Kenny McCaskill rose to the occasion at that time and decided that this was wrong, that there should be double jeopardy, but the double jeopardy issue should be challenged in the Scottish legal system. And he set out to do that politically. Frank Mulholland, who very soon became the Lord Advocate, set about doing it legally. Now, don't underestimate what a difficult job this was. And it took years to convince Parliament and the legal establishment that the double jeopardy issue should be addressed. Now, it had been addressed in England and Wales. It had been addressed in more, most European um, countries because it was, it's old-fashioned. Yeah. 
And what it doesn't recognize, it doesn't recognize the brilliant new forensic science that can come up and they can show clear and new and compelling evidence that somebody who has been previously found not guilty of a very serious crime, like murder or rape, is in fact guilty. And other jurisdictions had recognised this, and the Scots were a wee bit tardy. We, I, I think, a phenomena of Scotland that we like to think were somehow better than other people, and our legal system's better, and our education system's better. And sometimes that's true, and sometimes it's not. What it can do, it can make people very reluctant to change. Yeah. And while this argument was going on, I was I knew, knew a lot of lawyers and sheriffs and judges, and I had some really animated conversations with them. Some very good people saying, no, we don't have double jeopardy. And Frank Mulholland and uh, Kenny McCaskill could have stepped back from it and just fallen behind the defences of legal precedent and all that mumbo-jumbo that we've heard all our police careers. But they didn't. They stepped up and they stepped out they fought through that legislation in the Scottish Parliament. And I'll come to talk about what we learned uh, during the case, but, you know, there are, there are very few benefits, if any benefits, come from the murder of two young girls. How can you make a virtue of anything that comes of that? Well, um, in the World's End case, it changed the law for the better. And that's something positive to hang on to. Tom, something that we'll get into in future podcasts, but I just want to skim across it just now, that theme of changing the law, because it's very, very topical all the time. But as far as sexual crimes are concerned just now, with rapes and all the problems that we have uh, that women suffer in our society, there's lots of campaigns to have our levels of corroboration, to have our levels of evidence-giving in courts uh, changed to accommodate and allow more convictions which totally rubs us up the wrong way, I would imagine, because we've been taught all our careers that some of these things are set in stone. Some of these ideas and principles of law are the cornerstones, is what we've been taught, of our criminal justice system, which is a leading criminal justice system globally that's been copied all over the world. And it's very difficult for me to get my head around that would, for instance, tamper with corroboration. I quite agree with you. We've got to face the fact that much of our legal system is based on the 19th century and social norms in the 19th century. Many of our statutes, like the Criminal Law Amendment Act, 1884, things like that. Now, you know, and we're, and we're living in a completely different time. So I agree with you. I think to do with corroboration would be incredibly dangerous. I just think it's an awful prospect. But at the same time, we cannot keep on with 19th century norms superimposed upon 21st century life. We're going to come back to that, Tom, especially with some of the guests that we've got lined up from the law profession. So the World's End murders, and uh, we're on to 2007 and thereafter. Over the next three or four years, the legislation is fought through. The Double Jeopardy Scotland Act is passed. And what it says is that you can retry someone for a crime they're already been discharged of, if it's a very serious crime and if there is new and compelling evidence. Now, very important, new and compelling evidence. So this is not just reheating the old pie and presenting it to the court. And there's several stages to it. So you've got to go before 
a court, a high court judge, and actually present this new and compelling evidence before it actually goes to the double jeopardy trial, before it can go to a retrial. So there are several hurdles. So while the act was brought in, it wasn't meant to be easy, and it's not easy. And the truth is that since the double jeopardy legislation was brought in, I think there's been three or four people only who have been tried twice for the same crime. And that's what it was designed to be. Yes, It was designed to be a last resort to, to correct a miscarriage of justice if there was new and compelling evidence. Okay, so once the legislation comes in, we start then looking at the new and compelling evidence. Of course, there was so much evidence that had not been led in the first trial, which is one of the problems, yes. that there was a whole lot of new evidence that the court had never heard. And plus, of course, DNA technology had moved on a pace. DNA technology moves on every six months. Over the course of years, it was altogether much more sensitive. You had low copy number DNA. You had uh, innovations like crime light, which is a, an intense laser light, which shows up specks of dust and small, minuscule particles of skin, which can then be retrieved and analysed. The whole world of science had moved on. And what happened in the second trial was that the team from the Crown Office, led by Frank Holland, who, as the Lord Advocate, was going to prosecute this case himself. Now, that's unusual, but he pinned his colours to the mast. He was going to do this. He was going to prosecute the case himself. And he gathered together the most amazing, oh, what's the word? The, the most amazing tapestry of forensic and circumstantial evidence to support the main DNA evidence. And eventually in 2014, Angus Sinclair came back to trial as the first person ever in the history of Scotland to be tried twice for the same crimes. And I attended the trial every day because I was writing a book about it at the time and I wanted to be absolutely sure and accurate. And attended the trial every day and it was a masterclass. And about a couple of days into the trial, which lasted the best part of a fortnight, I started to see groups of legal students, law students, coming into the court. And clearly, the word had got back to Edinburgh University or whatever university it was, and they were sending their students out to witness this. Yes. Because it was a trial and a case like no other. It was a masterclass. And Frank Holland's prosecution was flawless. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I should explain from the last episode, you explained that I thought brilliantly, very eloquently about the DNA being the, the centre post of the tent and where all the strings, all the ropes that were holding that tent up were all the circumstantial strands or spokes of evidence. Yep. And those decisions sometimes that Mulholland made, not sometimes, those decisions are made once. You can only lead the case in one way. And once you decide to call a witness and get their evidence and chief from them, you can't take that back. So all that strategy, court strategy, is very important. And it's obviously why the students were there uh, to get a glimpse of a master at work in that case. It was a first-class prosecution, it really was. And the thing is that what the Lord Advocate realised was that some of the witnesses were old men whose recollections were perhaps not as sharp, but he bolstered that individual evidence by layers and layers of forensic evidence. 
and opinion. I'll give you one example. It's only one example that the knots that had been used to bind Helen and Christine had never been disturbed, had never been untied. And so inside the knot was like a time capsule. Yeah. And when they untied the knots and examined them, they found tiny particles of DNA, which were Angus Sinclair's. And furthermore, in order to allay the possible defense of him saying, well, yeah, I had consensual sex, and I might have touched her tights, the scientists could actually say that the skin particles could only have got there, not by the casual touching, but by the person who tied the knot. Very, very compelling evidence. It really was. Yeah. And, of course, the, the remarkable thing about it, it was a drama. The remarkable yeah. thing about it was, in the end, Angus Sinclair, having said absolutely nothing for years, remember, decided to give evidence on his own behalf. Right. He actually went into the box. I know that Lord Advocate was amazed that he did it, but he did it. I suppose he had nothing to lose. And it was interesting because he'd, by this time he's a wee old grey man with a big long beard, looked a bit like a, a, a sort of wicked Santa Claus kind of figure, all stooped. To, I think he was putting on the aged thing to get a bit, a bit of sympathy. How could a man look like this be responsible for the best deal acts that he'd done? Very low voice, didn't speak very loudly. But all his time in prison had robbed him of any emotional intelligence he ever had. He came across as a completely cold, callous, and utterly emotionless person. And when Frank Mulholland said, well, you're saying that you met these girls, you'd never met them before, and you took them down to East Coast and you had sex with them, and then you just abandoned them and left them, and your brother-in-law must have killed them. And Sinclair said, yeah, that's what you used to do. That's what you do with women. You, know, you meet them and you have sex, and then you just drop them. And he came across as, as someone who had treated these girls like objects, like disposable objects. Well, I can tell you something. The jury was not impressed by that at all. I'm a great observer of juries. If I'm sitting in a court, I like to be facing the jury to see what they're doing. And I could see, I could just see them. <laughs> the faces turned to stone. They didn't like that at all. In the end, after a long trial, a superb trial, and of course the defence had to be, it was consensual sex. The defence was that, yes, he met these girls. He was always having sex with young girls. He met these girls and he had sex with them and he disposed of them callously, but that didn't make him a murderer. That was the defence. But the jury, the jury didn't buy it. Tom, you were in that court for two weeks, along with the, the jury, the ladies and gentlemen of the jury and all the other, uh, the press, etc. that were there. I dare say the court was full every day. Yes, I, the court was full every day. And, and, of course, the jury were there all the time. Um, but myself and one or two others were there observing continually. Can you give our listeners, it's a unique viewpoint, because although it was full, there wasn't that many people there in the big scheme of things. But you were there for the whole time. And you saw Sinclair, you were watching Sinclair, no doubt, for a good percentage of that thing. Was there any remorse? Was there any emotion? Was there any denial? Was there any, oh, for goodness sake, or... You know how sometimes the accused will shout out, that's a lie or whatever, when the police were given their evidence or when this compelling and probably damning forensic evidence was given. Did Sinclair show anything to us at all? Nothing whatsoever. He sat completely 
stone face. Very difficult to tell, of course, because he had so much facial hair, so you couldn't see much in the way of facial expression. Maybe that, maybe that was uh, one of the reasons why. But no, he just sat there. And as I say, when he gave evidence, he whispered it. The judge kept asking him to uh, speak up so the jury could hear him. The trouble is, having been as long in prison as he had been, he was completely unaware of the social norms. He didn't know how to conduct himself. Yeah. And, he, and he gave the appearance of just being a completely emotionless in the face of the most horrendous charges. If you'd been charged with the rape and murder of two teenage girls, you would be saying, I didn't do this. I, I, you'd be protesting your innocence. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. As far as he was concerned, he was just playing it out. That emotional intelligence, again, it's something that we'll come back to, Tom. I remember we had to follow, uh, conduct surveillance on a guy who had been in prison for 23 years in Peterhead for a crime that he, he maintained that he hadn't committed. But when he came out after 23 years, it was a very difficult job that we took on because he didn't know how to behave. He couldn't go in and buy a newspaper. He didn't know how money worked anymore. He was driving about at 20 miles an hour because everything was so changed in the 23 years that he'd been off the street. So I'm sure that some will come back to, especially institutionalised uh, criminals who become used to uh, being incarcerated in the lifestyle that they, they become part of and want to go back all the time. So what was the outcome then after two weeks? How did it pan out? The jury retired, and it's the old story. If the jury come back quickly, it's usually guilty. If the jury take a long time, then it starts to be a bit more doubtful. The jury went out about four o'clock on the last day of the trial, and we hung about, and there was a witness room laid on by the police for ex-police officers and whatnot. So we hung about there, and I kept a coffee. And then, oh, it was after five o'clock, about half past five, we got word, the jury's coming back. Yeah. Of course, we, we all rushed into the court and sat down, and uh, the four women actually of jury got up and said that unanimous decision of guilty on all the charges. And uh, the trial judge was Lord Matthews, who is, who is a, a very good uh, judge, and we, you see him appearing in some of the more difficult cases now in the High Court. And Lord Matthews obviously had a sense of it. He'd been listening very carefully and, of course, taking copious notes. And, of course, then when now he's found guilty, out comes his previous convictions. And you saw the reaction of the jury. And there was a couple of people in the jury, one man, one woman, who slumped forward, hands and head, weeping that here was this man and They'd obviously been wondering about it and all this, and, and here was the vindication. They'd been right all along because here was this horrific history of rape and murder all read out to the court. And Lord Matthews then uh, sentenced them to 37 years imprisonment, being the longest sentence ever at that time, yeah. ever handed down from a Scottish court, being the same number of years between Helen and Christine's murder and the trial. Was that a minimum term that he got then, Tom? I can't remember, but it was academic because I mean, he was 70 years old and he was already serving two life sentences. So many, it was a symbolic thing. It was an important symbolic thing. Tell me, Tom, people will be wondering if the families were present. Absolutely, yeah. Yes, Moraine, Scott, his son, Christine's family, they were present. And, and Moraine gave a, a very, very dignified television interview afterwards. 
and just simply said that many years before, he had promised his dying wife that he would see justice done, and now he had. And I take it there was a lot of emotion in that court space. When the verdict was read out, was there any outbursts or anything in amongst the court? Well, it was just it was a huge sigh of relief, obviously, from the body of the court. There's nothing from Sinclair at all. He just sat, stoom, emotionless. He must have known the way the wind was blowing. And listen, at the end of the day, so supposing it had been found not proven not, not guilty, he was going back to prison anyway. He had these two weeks in the high court. Exactly, he had the day, and he had I've no doubt he had stories to tell when he went back to the jail. Yeah. It's funny because a lot of people then said to him, this is fantastic. And some of the, the young officers who were there from the CID, one of whom was the son of the, one of the original investigators. That was the funny thing. It was a real generational thing. Alan Jones was there. I was there. And we no more felt like going for a celebration and flying there. We were exhausted. And I remember feeling utterly exhausted. And I had left the police by that time. I had been retired from the police for something like seven or eight years, but that was the day I left the police. Yeah. I got a text message from one of my former colleagues, and he said, you've wiped something off the slate today. And that's how it felt, actually. It felt like it was a, it was something that the force, that all its life, the police force, the Lodian Borders Police, had struggled with, and at last, we'd wiped it off the slate. Tom, we've gone through this now, in detail, lots more detail that we could pick from it, and we will do in the future. We'll come back to some of the themes here, like evidence, like jury selection, all the, the things that make up our criminal justice system, really. But focusing on the police and their investigation over those 37 years and the developments of technology over that period of time, what were the lessons then for us? What, did, what moved us forward? What, what did the world's end matter? If it has got a legacy, if those two girls' mothers has got a legacy, a positive legacy in any way. The legacy has got to be the double jeopardy legislation, which will protect people in the future. Uh, I think that's the good news. What was the learning point? First of all, I think the mistake we made right at the very beginning was we're investigating the crime and not the criminal. And we know now that when we're dealing with offenders like Robert Black, like Angus Sinclair, actually, you've got to look at the offender and not at the offence. That's the first thing. The second thing is that really, and it's a recurring theme, I know, and it may sound like a stuck record, but systems really matter. Systems matter. Weakness in systems have ruined more cases than any fly-by-night detective. Think of the Yorkshire Ripper. And think of the huge, the tragedy of the loss of the forensic science in the Glasgow cases. And that was down to poor systems. Yeah. And so you've got to invest in systems. The other thing was about forensics. You've got to invest in forensics, but don't assume that your own forensic lab holds all the answers, because it doesn't. And I think the great strength of Alan Jones's role in this was that Alan Jones recognised that there were forensic experts out with the police forensic labs and out with the Home Office forensic labs down south. There were forensic experts who were doing little niche DNA work in small private companies, and he tapped into that. 
And the remarkable thing about him was that numerous times the door was closed in his face. There was nothing we can do with this. Bang. He never gave up. He went and knocked on another door and asked a different question until he got the right answer. An incredible display of just belief and pure doggedness that there was an answer there if he asked the right question. He just had to write the question. So I think investment in forensics. There was also a big learning point in guarding against assumptions, guarding against this tunnel thinking. For instance, thinking that sex offenders were only sex offenders, because we know they're not. Yeah. They're usually thieves as well. Yeah. Or thinking that child sex offenders were different from adult sex offenders. No, they're not. And Angus Sinclair was a perfect example of that. But you think back to 1980, here is Angus Sinclair arrested for the very, very serious sexual assaults on 10 children, and at the same time, there's a full-blown investigation going into Anna Kenny, Agnes Cooney, Hilda Macaulay, in the same police force, yes. and yet there's no messages passed between them because we're stuck in this silo of thinking that a sex offender must be of a certain shape and size and they're not. I think the other thing... You've always got to be mindful. I was thinking about it today, actually, because there's something in the papers there about the police not going to investigate minor offences yeah, in some totally. parts of the country. You've got to watch for entry-level offences like the theft of underwear, like indecent exposure, yeah. like peeping toms. You've got to have your net spread so you pick up on these things because Inevitably, when you get a hold of someone like Robert Black or Angus Sinclair, you find there's some clue, either small or large, in their background. Yeah. And you've got to have your net spread in order to do that. Very often, these, what they must be terming as minor crimes, I saw what you're talking about. I think it was the North East they were talking about. And it's happened in other forces up and down the country as well, that they start to categorise things as we haven't got the resource to go. And, and that's fair enough. I saw a sign on a police door yesterday down in Lanark, and it said, I'm paraphrasing, but it was once to the effect of, due to operational demands, this office will be closed until further notice. Please phone 101, blah, 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 which takes 20 minutes sometimes to get through to 101. But I thought that sign's not true. It's not because of the operational demands. The operational demands are probably down from what they were. It's because of the manpower and staffing levels, we don't have the capability to deal with the operational levels that we have. That's important, Tom, about those minor crimes, because I don't know any serious criminal who's never started off with minor crimes. And we hope to catch juveniles and people at a, a younger age and get them to, to see a different road ahead and identify problems in their families or whatever it might be. We can only do that by solving these so-called minor crimes which are only the start of maybe a, a life in crime. Yeah, that's right. And when you consider famous cases like the Orchard Ripper or the Black Panther or these people, they were all actually arrested for very minor crimes. Yeah. yeah. I think the other thing to learn from it, and we learned from it, was to keep going. That momentum is everything. And if you stop, if you close the inquiry down, it's really difficult to get going from a standing start again. I'm very much attracted to this new system they've got in Police Scotland where they've got a homicide review board, which sit, and that's the Crown Office, it's the police, it's forensic services, where they're constantly reviewing these old cases and keeping them warm 
and keeping them going and keeping the momentum and testing whether there's anything new they can do. And I think that's great because you've done it, I've done it. You get a break in a case and you go and you drag out an old cardboard box and there's a file of old papers in it. And from a standing start, it's really difficult. And the other thing we're really bad at is a succession plan. We were fortunate in that because the case was so important that there was a rolling changeover of officers who took interest in the case. Now, Alan Jones is a very good example. You've heard me speak about Alan Jones. He ended up a DCI in the case, retired the detective superintendent. Alan got introduced to the world's end as a DC, as a young detective constable. So he was gradually led into the case that way. But we still have a great lack of the passing on of institutional learning in the police service. It's something I was going to ask you about, Tom, because what comes across here, and I'm sure it'll come across to all of our listeners, is that here we have a man who retired as a deputy chief constable and has a lifetime in the CID of criminal investigation experience behind him. And all of that, whether you wanted to or not, all that knowledge and, and experience and learning from mistakes along the way, all the, the families you dealt with, all the forensics, all of that. And the minute you retire, when was that? In 2006, 2007? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's lost to the police service. And that's repeated time and time again. Every few months, more senior officers leave and we let them go and start over a new leaf and we lose all of that. Surely there must be some facility or some thought to using you as a consultant. Maybe not now because I know that you're past it now, but maybe when you first left, I beg your pardon. Well past that. <laughs> now it took you a minute or two. I resemble that remark. The funny thing is, you see, the scientists do it because they write up papers. They write academic papers. Yes. So their institutional knowledge is passed on. But in the police service, we do not do that. But we're doing it now. We're doing it right now. The funny thing is that for many years, and still I get asked to go and speak to people about the world's end, and still I meet policemen and speak about the world's end, and about what's happening. There's an unfortunate trait in the police service, I find, of the new broom. And you'll get a new boss coming into the CID, and it can be a male or a female, because females can be macho as well. And it's this business of the, all the way before is old-fashioned, and it has to be swept out. And we had a chief constable of Police Scotland. I'm not going to name his name, but there's only been three of them. And it's not <laughs> the one who's just retired. <laughs> where a, police, a chief constable of Police Scotland who had the view that all that went before was obsolete and rubbish, and you had to do with it. That's right. And a lot of wisdom and knowledge was swept away. So why, I suppose you'll know more about this because you went through the management structure of the police as well, from DCI and et cetera, where there's a principle about the new broom yep. making a clean sweep getting rid of this guy, getting rid of that. That's the way we used to do things. This is the new way we're going to do things. You see it all the time. In my experience more recently, over the last few years, still interfacing with police officers on a weekly basis at least, what I've discovered is in the, the lower ranks, in the coal phase, there's not that attitude at all. It takes me an hour to get out of the police station generally. Once they discover that I was a police officer, worked in government, serious crime squad. Once I tell them a few stories because it's banter, then the room starts to fill up. 
because there's a thirst for that. There's a thirst to know how we got to where we are now. There's a thirst to know how we used to do things because that informs how we do things now. That's how our criminal law system has evolved. But the police ignored it. That's right, it does. It's one of the tragedies. If you were long enough in the service as I was, you see the same idea coming round second or third time, being reinvented. And I used to say that the, the police service is a scrapyard of good ideas. Yeah. Um, and you would see somebody, I've got this brilliant new idea, boss. Um, why don't we have policemen working in the community and, and working to be... <laughs> yeah. uh, The other great lesson is the importance of the families in these cases and the importance of making full use, and I use the word advisedly, of the families because they're a tremendous asset to the investigation and furthermore, they're due that respect. During this investigation, we were looking at a number of old murders. Several times I went to see people whose daughters had been murdered 30 odd years before. And it was very clear initially, until you broke the ice, that they felt they hadn't been paid due respect by the police way back in the 1970s. And, and we were lucky. We were lucky in two ways. We were lucky in that we had a continuity of officers who always kept the families informed. And we're also lucky that we had a remarkable spokesman and leader of the family in Marine Scott, who I've spoken to you about before. He was incredibly important. In hindsight, you sit back and you think, who were the key players in all this? We say West of Nib was a key player. John McGowan, who put it all on homes and fought that through. Alan Jones, certainly. Now you've got to say, Frank Mulholland, the Lord Advocate, absolutely key player. His determination. Kenny McCaskill, the politician, key player. Maureen Scott was a key player in that case. There's no question about it. And as time goes by and sitting back now almost 10 years after the trial, somehow you get a clearer vision. And yeah. you can see clearly who the playmakers were, where the changes came about and what the important turning points of the investigation were. And that's what interests me in these great cases is the turning points. Tom, we've heard it from the horse's mouth because you're right about it being a key case in Scottish police and criminal history. And you were there. You were there throughout. And it really is exclusive to Crime Time Inc. having you available to do that. And the good news is that we've still got you while you've got your wits about you to tell us about all the research that you've done into other historic crimes going beyond even your service to look at the intricacies of that, the cold cases that you've investigated going way back to in police history, to the early days of the police in Scotland in the early 1800s. So we've got all that to look forward to, and I can't wait. But in the meantime, I suppose on behalf of everyone that listens to Crime Town at night, I need to thank you for doing that for us because that's invaluable. And it certainly enlightened me and no doubt lots of other. And I think the final thing to say is that people might have questions about that. They might want to speak to you about it personally. They might have parts of the story that they played themselves that they want to contribute. Would that be okay if we maybe had a wee live session some night and you would, you would put yourself through that, Tom? Of course I would, and it's been a pleasure to talk about it. I've spoken about this case and written about this case a lot, but you don't get a chance to explore the detail yeah. and get uh, behind the scenes, as it were. And I think that's the great value of Crime Time Inc., is the, 
is there's the opportunity to do that and to share that. Yes. Uh, and from my point of view, pay tribute. Very important for me to pay tribute to the hundreds and hundreds of officers who uh, kept this inquiry to the forefront, who never gave up on Helen and Christine. Many of them played minor roles, some played major roles, one or two key players I've discussed, but all of them they really did a fantastic job. And I'm very proud of them, and I want to pay them credit. They really did. That's what policing's all about. To me, that's the very the soul of Scottish policing. At the end of the day, when you look at cases like this, what I'm always struck with is the total waste. There were two young girls that were 17 years old. They were at the very start of their lives. They'd have been 60 years old now. And they'd have been mothers, grandmothers. Who knows what they might have contributed in nursing or teaching? Who knows? All of that just snuffed out in minutes of just wickedness. When you start to think about that, the real impact of the enormity of these crimes, the waste of it really strikes you. Tom, obviously, Mr. Sinclair spent the rest of his natural uh, in prison, and I believe he died a couple of years ago. Do you know any of the circumstances of that or anything? No, he, he just died of old age in prison and went unwarned. And uh, funnily enough, I was, I was contacted by a newspaper, asked to do it if I would do an obituary of Sinclair, and I said, no, I wouldn't. But what I would do is I'd write a piece about the girls he killed. Um, but, and that's what I did. He was a disgraceful human being. And my only hope is that now we have systems and procedures that can prevent someone like that ever embarking on the reign of terror, which he did. As I've said, I think by any objective standard, he has got to be the most dangerous man that's walked the face of Scotland in the 20th century that we know about. That we know about. Yes. And it follows on from that then, Tom. And I know that you paid tribute to the family, uh, the father, uh, all of the, the people, the hundreds of people and people we'll never know about that were involved in bringing this to fruition. But it seems to me, having spoken to you about it for, for across this series of podcasts on Trying Time Inc., that there really was one man that built that pole in the middle of the tent that made the whole case possible at the end of the day, and it was your colleague in Lothian and Borders Police. We, we would not have solved the, the Angus Sinclair case, the World's End murders, had it not been for DNA, had it not been for the forensic science, had it not been for the vision, had it not been for the utter professionalism of our forensic services and particularly Lester Nibb. And I feel bad just talking about him because he had a whole team around him. But at the end of the day, that's what made the difference. And it comes back to the, the Mrs. Beaton's recipe for hair soup. First catch your hair. It was Lester Nibb and the scientists who allowed us to catch the hair. And thank goodness. Thanks, Tom. As I said, people can get in touch through our Twitter account. We've got a Facebook account. So we welcome people to get in touch and give us a view and anything at all. And maybe come on and have a chat on our podcast. In the meantime, Tom, thanks for doing that. And we'll speak very soon and move on to more heinous crimes that you've covered over the years. Thanks very much, Tom. Good night. Good night. Next time on Crime Time Inc. So, Tom, how on earth... Did you come across this? How did you find out about this story, which is absolutely incredible? I'd have called it the Incredibles. How did that come about, Tom? How I came upon it was, in 1998, I was promoted to Deputy Chief Constable, Lothian Boris Police, and I moved into a new office at Fetis. 
And the DCCs, the deputy chiefs, as you know, and police forces are the people who look after all the confidential stuff, all the complaints, all the discipline, all of that stuff. It's the DCCs are the kind of the people who look after all of that. And so in every deputy chief constable's office up and down the land, there's a large locked cupboard in which all the secrets are stored. And so when you take over that job, you get handed the keys to this. It was a big, in our case, it was a big locked cabinet with a huge external locking bar and two big padlocks on it. And I couldn't wait to open it up and at last to reveal the truth of all the secrets that I'd heard so much about and I'd lived with in all my time in the force. At last I would know the inside story.